Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Then de the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. The word of the Lord. A defining moment. Defining moments typify a person. They can define a career and they can challenge and inspire us. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther had a defining moment when he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, sparking a fire that spread across the Western world and changed the course of history. Not too many decades ago, Martin Luther King stood with the statue of Abraham Lincoln behind him in the entire mall, crowded with people before him. And had that defining moment when he said, I have a dream that one day my four little children 
will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Just a couple decades ago, Ronald Reagan stood at the western side of the Berlin Wall. And he said before the crowds, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Defining moments not only define careers or challenge and inspire us personally, they change the course of history. Christianity makes this claim. The cross and the empty tomb are the defining moments in all of human history. And the gospel of John that we're in the midst of studying suggests that the action at Lazarus' tomb is the defining event in Jesus' life before the cross and resurrection. One commentator suggests that the significance of raising of Lazarus from the dead in the gospel of John cannot be exaggerated. It was the high point of the entire story before you get to Easter week. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. You see, Jesus went around talking about the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is near. In his day and age, there was a belief that one day God would come and establish his kingdom. And when God came, he would bring justice and peace. And in that culture, the understanding of justice was the righting of all wrongs, and peace was making everything whole. Nothing more typified the righting of wrongs and the making whole of brokenness than raising a dead man to life. The raising of Lazarus was the climax of Jesus' ministry. It was also a main reason for his execution, as we'll see later. It foreshadows his own death and resurrection, and it reveals what Jesus does for all of us. And so as we look at this story today, we're answering three basic questions. What does Jesus do in this episode? Why does he do it? And what does it mean for us? But really, we're going to spend a lot of time asking that middle question, why? Why does Jesus do it? When you look at John 11, there's several reasons why Jesus comes and enters this this death area and brings life. They are glory, compassion, and anger. The first is glory. Why does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? It's this word glory. In verse 4, we read that Martha has come to Jesus somewhere else and said, Lord, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus replies, the illness does not lead to death. The illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, in order to understand what John is getting at here and what Jesus is saying, the illness did not occur to bring glory to God. Hear what I'm saying here. It's not that God made Lazarus sick. It's rather Lazarus' sickness and eventual death was an occasion, an occasion for God's glory to be revealed. In other words, God used it. All suffering, all suffering may be an occasion for the spread of God's glory. Now, when we understand the glory of God, some of us get hung up on that, like God is standing around looking for us to cheer and applaud. 
The way that John, the, the gospel writer, uses the glory of God here and elsewhere, it's not simply the praise and fame of God, but it's the revelation of who God is. So Jesus is saying the occasion of the illness of Lazarus is an opportunity, an opportunity for God to be seen and understood and revealed. And that's very often true. God's presence, his goodness, his love, his perfection, his grace, his forgiveness are often experienced more deeply in trial than they are in times of ease. It's why Paul, the apostle, later on wrote about an issue that was going on in his life in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talked about this thing he talks about metaphorically as a thorn in his flesh. He had some trial, some issue, some challenge going on in life, and he prayed that God would get rid of it. But the Lord didn't take it away. Instead, the Lord answered him and said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul goes on to say, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more. I'm going to get more excited about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And he's able to say, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities, for when I'm at my weakest, I am strong. Not that he's personally strong, but he experiences the strength of God most when he has nothing left to stand on but God. Many of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman who was tragically paralyzed from the neck down when she was diving into the Chesapeake as a teenager. Years and years of therapy and painful trials she'd had to deal with. And her faith in God was challenged and continues to be challenged as she tried to grasp what it is to believe in a God who's there with her in the midst of suffering. And at one point, Johnny Erickson Tata wrote, God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. I honestly don't know how she could say that or how Paul could talk about boasting in his calamities and trials. I actually prefer ease. But somehow these two faithful believers have been able to get to the point, Paul the Apostle in Scripture, Johnny Erickson Tata in the midst of dealing with paralysis where they can say, I experience God fully in the midst of my weakness and tragedy and suffering. And I think that's some of what Jesus is getting at here in John 11. Jesus is saying, I'm here to reveal myself fully, to show you God. And this sickness and death of my friend Lazarus will give occasion to reveal me to you. In John 11, Jesus is laying all of his proverbial cards on the table. And he's revealing himself as the life-giving, death-conquering God. So this sickness is an occasion to reveal God's glory. That's one reason why Jesus enters the death and brings life. A second reason is compassion. And you see compassion in the compassion of Jesus littered throughout this passage. 
First, you see it right at the beginning when Martha comes to Jesus and says, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. In verse 5, Jesus is said to love Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. You see, Jesus apparently, according to John and the other gospel writers, was good friends with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They likely were brothers and sisters who lived in the same house, probably owned by Lazarus. By all indications, Martha and Mary were not married, and so they were then under the kind of protection of their brother Lazarus, who owned the house. So Jesus knew them well for some reason. He maybe stayed with them multiple times. He had a deep relationship of love and care. These were his good friends. And so he's moved with compassion because it's his good friends, Mary and Martha, who have lost their brother. And because it's his own friend, Lazarus, who is dying and then dead. It's why in verse 35, we have that short verse in the scripture, which says, Jesus wept. He's entering into their grief with them and grieving with them. Christianity believes Jesus is God, but he's also fully man, weeping at the death of a good friend of his. And in verse 32, we read that Jesus is deeply moved. His compassion and love for them and for Lazarus move him. And I think what's interesting, if you combine the the glory and compassion of God, that you often see the two of those together that the spread of God's glory always reveals his love. That God's love and God's glory go together. Not like peanut butter and jelly. More like fire and heat. God's glory reveals his love. And so in spreading God's glory in exposing God's compassion and love. Jesus moves, but also Jesus moves out of anger. In verse 33, we read, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and was greatly troubled. Now, on one level, we read that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled at the sorrow and sadness all around him. But most commentators point out these phrases, deeply moved and greatly troubled, and see behind them a whole lot of other stuff that's going on. You see, that phrase, deeply moved, was used of war horses as they were going into battle. And so you would talk about the horses snorting and rearing as they were getting ready to charge into battle. They were deeply moved horses, if you would. Another commentator suggests this is the strongest word available in the Greek language to talk about emotional anger. So deeply moved maybe falls short of the outrage and indignation and fury that is being suggested. He was deeply moved and he was also greatly troubled. The idea here is what the psalmist talks about when he says he's being flooded by waves and breakers. He's greatly troubled. Two other times, John, the gospel writer, uses this word greatly troubled. It's in John 12, 27, when Jesus is looking at his own death and cross and is greatly troubled. And again, in chapter 13, when Jesus is addressing his betrayal at the hands of his friend Judas. The cross and his betrayal caused Jesus to be greatly troubled. And so does the death of Lazarus. Jesus here is drowning in outrage, drowning in fury. Why is he so angry? 
because of death. Jesus sees in death Satan and sin and the fallen world that stand behind death and sees death as the epitome and end of all that is wrong with creation. And so he is outraged at the evil that is before him in the death of his friend. I'm more familiar with bad anger than I am with good anger. I tend to react with loud voice, stomping feet, like a, a terrible two-year-old sometimes in my own house. Usually my anger or temper is, is related to when I don't get my way. And I'm inconvenienced or I'm annoyed. And it's, it's really bad now because we have a, a, a new dog, a puppy. And the puppy has gotten used to my, my anger, temper, tantrums, and now backs off to the far corner of the room and gives me one of these sad looks like, don't come near me, buddy. I'm not even angry at the dog. That's not what is going on here. That's selfish, sinful anger. This is right or righteous anger. It's the sort of anger I remember welling up in me as a senior in high school when I saw a kid who was a couple years younger being picked on. I was not the kind of kid who got into fights, but I was ready to go to blows to protect that kid because I saw something wrong in these bigger kids picking on him. It's that anger that comes inside of me at the injustices when I walk through the Holocaust Museum. And even though the events of the Holocaust took place decades ago, I'm ready to go to battle. It's that anger that wells up inside of me when I hear stories of child abuse or trafficking around the globe. I almost can't read them because I get so filled with righteous anger at the wrongs and injustices that I'm reading about. And I think it's the sort of anger that might also be associated with death in general. About six years ago, I got a call from a lady down in Richmond. I was a minister at that church in Richmond, and she called to say her husband Craig had died. They had gone on a weekend trip to the farm about an hour away with their sons, had a great weekend, just a wonderful weekend hanging out as a family, seeing the stars at night with a campfire. They'd gone inside the house and put on a movie and the boys were hanging out with mom and dad said he was tired and went to bed and had a heart attack and never woke up. And as I was driving down 95 to go to the funeral where I was going to preach, I remember just cursing in my head, cursing not God, but death itself. This is wrong. This shouldn't be, I thought. And that's still my gut response to death to this day. I do sorrow and weep when somebody close to me dies. And I am filled with compassion and empathy when I see somebody else who has lost somebody. But every time I am angry. I am angry when a spouse dies or when a child dies. When it is a tragedy or an illness or even old age. And I know, listen, I know, sometimes, sometimes death seems merciful. It does. When somebody has lived a long life, or when it's been a long struggle with illness. But what I'm suggesting is, death is not as it should be. How do we know this? 
Because even years and years later, we still ache. We still ache for the ones that we love and have lost. That child, that husband, that grandfather. My grandfather died 13 years ago. And he had lived into his 80s. He died peacefully, making coffee in the morning. But you know what? I will never again watch Wheel of Fortune with him. I will never try to wake up so early that I can wake up before him and still find him out there with a bacon frying. I will never go on a hike with him again or swim in the Monongahela River with him again. I will never enjoy a hot dog at Fiddle's restaurant with him again, nor will my kids, nor will my dad. He's gone. And that ache and that pain tells me it's not right. Just this past week, we lost somebody in our community, Jane Seaman, who had been mayor of Vienna since 2000. She was a wonderful woman, mother, grandmother, spouse, friend to everyone in the town and surrounding towns. And the town is going to miss her. At her funeral on Friday, her son got up and said, 76 years was not enough for mom. And he was talking about because she had so much she wanted to do. But I remember hearing that and thinking, you're right. 76 years is not enough for Jane. Nor is 176 years or 1,076 years. She should have lived longer. Not, Not because she was a good woman, which she was. Nor because she was important to the community, which she was. She should have lived longer because she was human. Bill Haley, a friend of mine who's a minister at the Falls Church and also runs a retreat center in the Shenandoah Valley, talks about the death of his father-in-law that happened just this New Year's. And in reflecting on death and the death of his father-in-law, he wrote in a recent article, he wrote, death is awful. I hate it. I hate death. Just because death comes to us all, we may think of it as normal but it is not. Death is abnormal. Death, when it comes, is always an aberration. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not the way it's supposed to be, not just when it's a two-year-old or teenagers committing suicide like happened this week at Woodson. Two separate kids commit suicide, making six suicides in four years at Woodson High School. Death is not just abnormal and wrong when it happens early or tragically. It's even wrong when it happens to old grandpas. It's not normal because God made us physical, emotional, spiritual beings to taste, to dance, to play, to laugh, to sleep, to love, to enjoy one another, to grow in our knowledge of things, to experience life, and he made us to do so forever. Anything short of forever is not long enough. But we sinned, the Bible tells us. We have rejected God, and so death has come in. 
death has come in like an intruder entering the house. But we shouldn't get used to it. It's always an intruder. Death is not as it should be. It is the ultimate wrong, the ultimate picture of evil. And that is why Jesus was moved to fury, to anger. And so he confronts death head on, as we should confront any evil. And he calls out with the the, the stone rolled away, he calls out, Lazarus, come out! Now, the English and Americans have different ways of talking to their kids. I learned this when we lived in England for two years. The English are very indirect. Americans are very direct. So if an English person wants to get their kid to get into the car, the English person says something like this. Children, shall we get into the car now? It sounds so lovely. Now, the kids get it. Mom and dad is serious, are serious when they say it that way. An American is much more direct. I think I owe it to the influence of New York City on all of us. And, and they will say things as they mean them directly. And so instead of children, shall we get into the car now? Sarah and I would say, get in the car now. Jesus is using the American version here. Come out. Literally in the Greek, it's here, now. With the authority of Genesis 1 before him, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. The raw authority of God, the power of the creator of life is speaking. And he has to say, Lazarus, come out, as many preachers have pointed out, because if he doesn't identify Lazarus, every dead body in that grave is going to wake up. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, still wrapped up like a mummy, hops to the edge of the tomb. He's alive. Unwrap him, Jesus says. Death cannot win when Jesus is present. The result of raising of Lazarus from the dead is that many people believed, but the religious leaders, once again, were upset. They didn't know what to do with this Jesus who's going around raising the dead. You see, what they realized was if Jesus is raising the dead, people are going to swarm to him. And if people start swarming to him, the Romans are going to get worried and they're going to come in and, and crush us. And so the religious leaders gathered together, we read later on in our passage, and they tried to figure out what to do with Jesus. And Caiaphas, the high priest, said, said this in verse 50. He said, don't you guys realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish under the hand, <clears throat> hand of the Romans. And so they set about to put Jesus to death. How ironic. How ironic. Jesus is raising the dead. And it's one of the primary reasons he's put to death. But he's put to death so that we might have life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him doesn't need to perish, but can have eternal life. Jesus gives himself in our place. 
in John 11, Jesus is reversing the ultimate effect of the fall, death. He's revealing himself as the one who has power of life, power over death. He's showing himself to be the one who provides hope in a fallen and sinful world. One commentator suggested that the raising of Lazarus is what you would call an acted out parable, an acted parable. It is paradigmatic of what Jesus does for every believer. Jesus enters the tombs of our hopelessness and despair. He enters into our trapped sinful enslavement. He breaches our spiritual deadness and he raises us from the dead. It's why in Ephesians 2, we proclaimed with Paul today that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is a gift of God by grace. Jesus gives life to those who are dead. And it's why Jesus gives this declaration to Martha before he even does the miracle. In John eleven twenty five and 26, when he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Martha had some abstract belief about the resurrection happening one day. Like many of us have this abstract belief that, oh yeah, there's life after death, there's heaven. And Jesus says to Martha, no, no, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the way to eternity. Not just maybe there is some life after death, but it's found in me. The one who formed humanity and breathed life into him is standing here before you, Martha. Look, there's no escaping death. It is the final injustice and act of evil. And whether it happens in three days or 60 years, whether it's by tragedy or illness or you live 110 years, it will happen. But the gospel is good news. Jesus brings life. God entered life in Jesus, confronted evil and overcame death. The gospel tells us the source of life gave up his life on the cross that we might have life. The resurrection of Lazarus and the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ to which they point demand a response from us. Jesus underscores it not just for Martha, but for all of us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the source of life. True life now and life eternal to come. Only in me, Jesus, can you have life. Martha, do you believe this? And of course, it's a question for every one of us. Do you believe this? If so, how does the one who raises the dead call you to confront your fears, deal with the trials in your life, live with perspective, trust in him? How does the defining moment in history shape your own life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, this story is too hard to believe. 
that a tomb with a dead man in it gave up a life because you spoke. And yet I pray for faith, Lord. Faith to not only believe this story, but the story that it points to, the death and resurrection of your son. And to trust that that is available to us. God, I pray if anyone in here is spiritually dead, that you would raise them to life now. Cause us who doubt and struggle to trust and believe in the one who can give life, Jesus, your son. Amen. Jesus, God's own Son.